This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number 34, recorded on December 27th, 2016. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future, all from an academic perspective. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the Average Guy TV studios here in beautiful Bellevue, Nebraska. And of course, we post the show with world-class show notes, and they really are world-class. Christian writes them every time. If you're not checking out the show notes, you definitely want to head out to theaverageguy.tv and get that done. If you have, by the way, the new and improved AverageGuy.tv. We'll talk about that a little bit as we move along as well. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can contact us via email to send it to me, Jim, at theaverageguy.tv. Or you can track me down on Twitter at Jay Collison. Of course, theaverageguy.tv, powered by Maple Grove Partners, web hosting at secure, reliable, high-speed hosting. And high-speed is right. Yikes. From people you know and trust. For more information, visit maplegrovepartners.com. Christian, you've been keeping yourself busy. Can we talk about this right out of the shoot? Is that okay? Go for but- it. Can we mention some Maple Grove partners right out of the shoot? So, sure. Is that all right? Yeah. You can go for it. Dude, what the heck have you been doing over there? It is like ripping fast. Yeah. We put in uh, the next generation of hardware and really did an optimization of our infrastructure. And it just kind of changed the way we've been um, handling load and performance for our customers. So, we've seen about a um, a four times latency and performance improvement over um, our previous build version. And, you know, I use my hosting uh, to run some of my sites too. So I'm on the part of my whole mantra is the sites that are near and dear to my heart that I've run and managed over the years are on the same platform as what customers use. And uh, so BIOS mods, which is one of the common technology forms that a lot of folks who have followed us from some of the legacy podcasts are aware of, um, it's probably one of the fastest sites I've, I've maintained over the years. And the forms, which are the most popular part, the index page usually has about a 1.1 second load time. And keep in mind, this is a form that's visited by about 5,000 or so visitors per day and has over 115,000 registered users. So it's a pretty big database to be querying. And uh, we went from 1.1 second load time to 300 millisecond load time in this latest hardware release. And most of our PHP applications across the board have seen that type of response. So uh, we're really excited. Uh, We've gotten some great feedback from our customers on it. And this has also helped uh, dramatically cut some of our um, power and infrastructure expenses. Now that we're going to more low power solutions that still have more computation than our last uh, systems did. And so we're really reaping the benefits for that, both from a performance perspective and from a uh, power efficiency perspective. Yeah. If you head up to the average guy.tv right now, and uh, all things being equal with your internet speed, it it's, it's almost a simultaneously load, Christian. I mean, it's just you bring it to the page, at least for me, yeah. boom. It just, there's no more, you know, click, 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 click. I mean, it was fast before. And most people don't notice that kind of stuff anyways. But I've been, as you've been doing the upgrades, I've been checking it and just bam, it's there. Boom, it's there. So really cool. Uh, Google will continue to, to um, reward sites that go that fast. And so in their search rankings, the faster your site, I think that's what I heard, the faster your site, the, they'll give you some, some optimal performance uh, bonuses for that. So cool. It's, um, 
Yeah, I haven't been. One of the things I get dinged on at theaverageguy.tv is I don't write enough. Like it, it Google wants more words, and uh, I just don't write enough out there. I always joke about world class show notes, but um, you you do a pretty good job of that, and I've been working on it. But man, it's hard writing those words sometimes on a weekend week out basis is tough. So it's super fast. If you uh, if you're thinking about hosting, now it's the time to do it with Christian and. Uh, his plans start at 10 bucks a month. Super reasonable, easy billing, all that other good stuff going along. Head out to, if you want to check it out, maplegrovepartners.com. But if you just want to get some results, head out to theaverageguy.tv and a bunch of other sites. Check out the BIOS mod. Uh, is that BIOS-dash? Have trouble yeah, tonight. Bio, BIOS-mods.com forward slash form. Um, and again, you know, the network speed really is not too big of a deal in the sense that we've had folks from Australia say they're getting about the same page load times as what we're seeing on the East Coast. And uh, I've also tested when my cell phone is on a 3G uh, data connection, which is like maybe 512 uh, kilobytes per second. That sounds about right. And uh, it comes up about the same time. So yeah. um, it's a good measure of comparison for anyone who's interested. Good. Remember that when that was fast? Remember when 3G was fast? We're like, oh, can't wait to get 3G. And then When's 5G could... coming out? That's what I want to know. Yeah, I, I think this year. I think 2017 is the year. And it'll probably come out in the major markets and then uh, work its way out. Omaha was slow to get 4G. And it was even slower on Sprint because they had to redo the whole network. They started with one network and then said, no, we're going to have to do another network. And so I, I was kind of screwed on that yeah. one. Do we well, know what the classes of uh, new speeds are? I don't. Couldn't tell you. Do you know? I don't. Uh, yeah. But I know, you know, with 4G, I think the fastest I've seen, like, sitting right next to the tower, you can, if you're, like, right on top of the tower and there's a repeater, I've seen it get up to 30 down. Um, but like average 4G use case is usually somewhere between like two and 12. Yeah. I was so. going to say one to five in a lot of cases. Maybe that's the Omaha area. One yeah. To five. DC, I can get, you know, eight on a good day, I would say is average. So wind's blowing does. in the right direction. Sun is shining. Mm -hmm. Eight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Well, but for most, for what most people are doing on their phones, that's still pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah, no, it handles, it is. even one handles video pretty well for the most part. YouTube would downscale. Yeah, although so. I know AT and T and Verizon are now, um, I guess, capping your your speed if you get over like twenty gigabytes of usage for the month, which I guess seems reasonable. Uh, but I know that people are using four G more and more for video yeah. streaming. So, well, they're trying to. I mean, they're just trying to keep their networks clear and keep people off of it as their sole source of internet and or creating a black hole, sucking down data. Because, you know, there's guys that'll do that, right? Right. And so they're setting some limits to try and help with that. And I think for most people, I mean, I think I use one, maybe two, and I'm a heavy user. And so maybe not as heavy. My daughter will go through 30 because she'll do it. She doesn't want to use Wi-Fi. She'll do, she'll use LTE all the time. So. Sure, sure. Well, uh, 2016 has come and gone. We were just thinking about uh, the last uh, the last show we did of last year was on December 29th, 2015. We did a look ahead at uh, what we thought uh, would, would happen. Or It wasn't really a prediction show. It was kind of uh, some things that we thought, some things you thought would happen in 2016. We then took six months break. And uh, the next thing we know, it's June. 
<laughs> we pop back up with Cyber Frontiers. We've been back at it, oh, at least once a month since then. So mm-hmm. ba- back on a regular schedule. I think we'll, you know, we'll continue to shoot for that in 2017. But Christian, when you think of 20, when you think back on 2016 and you think it's the year of, what do you, how do you categorize it? I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I'm pretty sure in that, um, I'm pretty sure in the last year's show, we, one of the big things we said was uh, it's going to be the year of data breaches. And someone has to correct me on the record as to whether or not I said that, but that's pretty much how I'm going to classify this year. I mean, it was the year where the floodgates from 2015 only got bigger and it became more and more part of the headline news of everyday Americans as opposed to something that only technology people are following. So, I, I believe the title was uh, Cybersecurity Outlook for 2016, Emerging Threats and the Era of Darwinian Security. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think... Um, Pretty darn close. When you think, um, when we think about some of the breaches that we saw in 2016, can you roll just a few, uh, both high profile and maybe not so high profile? Oh well, first we're going to play the memory game. So this is is kind of pay attention. So, so I just want to see from your perspective, Jim, what are the biggest breaches you remember? Because I'm curious, like after a year has passed, what are the ones that people actually remember as having impacted them? Well, for me, I think the two that stand out in my mind, because just because those are the only ones I really paid attention to. And as we go through these, I'll probably remember the other ones. But Yahoo, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yahoo got a lot of attention. Um, and that wasn't even just this year. I mean, that one went back. <laughs> it's like, yikes. Yeah. Um, and then because we promote LastPass so much, LastPass had an issue earlier in the year in May. Um and those are really the two for me that uh, that I kind of paid that I think I paid attention to the most when I think about it, um, which I think tells us something that for the average guy, there are more happening, and I think the average guy is paying less attention to them. They used to be a big deal, right? When right. I think about them, but I think they get they get you know less and less. Yeah, I think one of the things that was advantageous for LastPass is that it wasn't necessarily. Um a data breach in the traditional right. sense where you're actually getting, you know, so I think that really helped help them not make any of the uh, top um, security lists for the year in terms of a wrap. Yahoo is certainly big. I think that it's uh, really interesting that the, the dam kind of broke um, around the same time that Yahoo has been trying to court different people to acquire the company um, over 2016 and seeing how does that impact whether or not the acquisition will go through? Um, I think it's huge, uh, especially in the case for Yahoo, when Microsoft was originally looking to acquire Yahoo and the sticker price Microsoft was willing to pay, I think was some somewhere close to 40 billion. And now Yahoo's gonna be lucky if they can sell it for 4 billion. So they weren't willing to take the offer then and here they are at about 10% of their stock value of when they last tried to do this. And so, you know, as a result, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a breach of this magnitude drove down the value further and made it maybe more difficult for that final acquisition to go through. And then the question really becomes, what does Yahoo do with this? Or what does Verizon do with this if they do, in fact, finish the acquisition? I mean, you're, you're inheriting a company that really made its heyday in being 
um, like an alt Google service and a news aggregator and having some of these very web 1.0 services. And it kind of constantly struggled to meet the web 2.0 trend. So it'll be interesting to see in the case of Yahoo, um, how successful they are at kind of calling it quits, so to speak. And then, you know, what will Verizon do with it? Um, I think, Christian, let me say uh, the other one, I think, as we're talking about this, uh, of course, was LinkedIn. And that was earlier in the year. Um, and not an easy, I mean, I guess an easy one to forget because I forgot it. But looking back, uh, that one makes sense. And now they're being acquired by Microsoft. So, you know, we have kind of a similar situation Microsoft's getting. Now, I don't think that breach um, was, um, you know, it was. it had been a long, it had been, way back in 2012, I think, when that breach happened and it was being disclosed in 2016. And so it's a little bit different of a story. And it, that, that kind of seemed to be a trend this year too, was a bunch of breaches that had happened three years or four years you know, before that were just now coming to light. So that also seemed, seemed to be a trend. Yeah, there seems to be something sexy about posting the data dump four years later. I'm not quite sure I get that uh, or if they were looking for some type of moment of opportunity. Uh, but yeah, it is pretty interesting that the, uh, you know, 100, 117 million credentials from LinkedIn shows up four years later. I, I, that is an unusual trend, not one that, you know, you, I, more often than not, you're going to see the data show up within six months if someone has the intent to release it. So I do find it surprising that it took that long to um, surface. Uh, but yeah, LinkedIn is definitely one of the companies that made the uh, top list. Some of the other ones that I think folks would be, uh, that would go, oh yeah, that did happen, would be Snapchat. Um, 700 of the current and former employees at Snapchat had all their PII stolen. So, you know, in a way, I think this didn't really impact um, people actually using Snapchat, but probably made some head scratches of, hey, if the employees have been hacked, when are we going to get hacked? Um, Verizon was a pretty big headline. The fact that all of Verizon Enterprise Solutions had had um, a pretty big data breach for 1.5 million customers. This was something that was covered by um, Krebs on security pretty in depth, and they followed that for quite some time. Uh, so th there are some pretty big names, uh, both retail, government, and otherwise, that make this list. Uh, the list that I'm using as a point of comparison is published by Identity Force at identityforce.com, and they pretty much measure what they consider to be the largest data breaches of 2016. And I would say, and by and large, that I mostly agree um, with their conclusions. What's curious to me is I, I honestly wonder how many of these top breaches uh, the average guy actually is remembering. Uh, because like, for example, I had fully forgotten that Dropbox was one of the lists that made the 2016 count. And so it had been kind of completely um, off of my mind and yet it was one of the largest breaches. So I, I kind of wonder how big and how transparent that is and how many people actually are tracking these things when it happens you know, a year later. Well, and, and Dropbox had the same situation, right? A 2012 breach that is come that comes to light in 2016, and uh, and so you kind of wonder, you know, what, you know, one, why so long in between, and then two, uh, how many customers were really affected by it? Is it is it really affecting? Yeah, they're getting this data, but is it something they can really do anything with? I mean, time will tell, but. Right. 
it it is one of those you know one of those odd situations where you, you think wow that was that was a while ago and they're like yeah just reset your passwords and it's like man since 2012 i've reset my password you know 50 times probably uh there no most people don't but yeah and i think some of it too is how well are these companies responding to the breach so actually i i went into i've had a long time yahoo spam account uh that i have used for when i don't want solicited advertising coming my way and i know it's coming my way and um so i logged into yahoo first time i've logged in since the breach has happened and the disclosure notices that there was an issue was immediately visible in the uh, login box. And so you could click and read about all the details of the breach. Then when I logged into my account, it immediately asked me to change my password. It didn't give me any option to get out of it more than one time. So that was really great to see that they were saying, hey, even though our passwords were MD5 hashed, change it now. And uh, then verifying and validating that your recovery information your cell phone and your secondary email address were in fact correct and up to date. And so they had a pretty nice walkthrough for that. Uh, they also made sure that you verified that your, whatever apps you had granted permission to your Yahoo account, you could go and delete them at that time if you didn't want them to still have permission. Uh, so by and large, I thought Yahoo made a very present and easy to follow instruction for users to um, take action on the breach. Obviously, it doesn't impact the um, reputational hit that Yahoo will take, but I think Yahoo's already been taking a pretty substantial beating in other ways when it comes to their reputation. So this is a, um, it was nice to see that they had a very direct and prompt response. And then also in my inbox as well, I got a an email from Bob Lord, who's the current chief information security officer that went out to um uh, all yahoo.com users and it pretty much very specifically says what happened what type of information are we talking about what actions are being taken to um, remedy the issue and so i think that's you know a a good example of what companies should follow as a operating procedure when they find themselves in this situation uh, because companies that don't kind of fully hit that level of response um, can really be held liable in a variety of different ways. When um, when that happened to me on Yahoo, um, you know that's that I, I honestly had this thought, Christian. I'd be like, you know, I think I'm done with them. You know, now I'm so my that email address that I use there is so tied into so many things. It literally would probably take me a full year to unwind everything and pull it all out and find everything where it should, you know, to where it go. I don't know. Do you think, I mean, am I in a situation, am I foolish for using a Yahoo email address as a primary at this point? I'll consider it primary as a primary, primary email address. I mean, I've got it, I've got it as locked down as it's possible with Yahoo from a security standpoint, including a very complex password, but it, you know, what, what do you think? Should, should I leave them? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I think a lot of people are, are jumping ship from Yahoo email at this point. I've traditionally had a lot of problem with getting uh, excessive spam to my Yahoo email over the years. And so, um, you know, when you compare Yahoo's love, love service with Gmail, uh, all things considering that they're both free and that you're both going to see advertising from time to time, uh, Google has always been much more up to date with kind of pushing the latest in security possible. And so, they were one of the first to really offer two-factor authentication in an easy to use and serious way. 
and you don't read about you know millions of gmail accounts being hacked and put in the wild you just don't see that headline whereas yahoo has had a pretty interesting track record of it and so in this way uh you know if you're already really entrenched in the service that's fine but uh, you might consider starting to put online other stuff that over time you you put more and more things on these other accounts and you know that's why i think more people are moving to self-hosted email more people are moving to um, email providers that have things like two-factor out of the out of the gate and so forth and you know yahoo has caught up with these types of standards but it doesn't change the level of damage of what data has already been leaked and put on the wild and it's hard to say with this type of leak um you know this is just another way for attackers to have a huge list of emails that they should target for phishing scams and for promotions and so forth so if you had any notion that your email address was only known by your friends and family that notion is now gone and so i think that's a really important consideration to take an effect when you're talking about having an email related breach one of the one of the hassles here i am on LastPass. 282 different accounts that are collected there yeah. now they're not all yahoo but let's just say 200 of them are well i got some work to do you know and that's and you're right everything new i've probably had an opportunity in the last couple months to create new accounts and i just always default to that one so i i, I probably need to sit down and say okay what's going to be my default account for all these you know where am i going to go um, I recently had to do that uh, with some credit card stuff because uh, the credit card industry is kind of out of control with stolen cards and stuff. So it's like, okay, what am I going to choose to be primary? I mean, uh, just as a side note, I've moved to a realm where my primary credit card that I use every day, I assume that once a year it's going to get compromised. Mm -hmm. and that, And so I'm attaching nothing to it, right? And then I have a secondary card that we've run through the shredder you don't even i don't even have it anymore i don't physically have it it's only exists online that gets my reoccurring bills because you know i want to set those up and be able to get the points for those things both cards have the exact same points plan but i just got sick of every time the card got compromised i have to change 15 you know direct bill pays so i'm I, christian i moved to a situation where i have a disposable i'm treating it anyways like a disposable credit card not tying anything to it and it's only for transactions that we do and then a completely separate one for when i travel so i've you know and and i'll admit i, I bought lifelock for you know there's just been enough things going on that it's it was one of those things like you know can't hurt to uh to have a service like that at least monitoring and they back it up in some ways yeah so we moved in that direction so I'm going to probably have to do that with email where I sit down and say, okay, I'm making a change. What do I want to be my primary account? Knowing that that account is going to be in the wild again pretty quick. Like, sure. you know, um, but you're right. should probably be like a Gmail account that's got better two-factor. And, um, you know, I don't know. So it causes yeah. me to yeah, no, and, and then you get into a different class of uh, malware that's just on the opposite spectrum of data breach, where rather than exposing the data, you're obfuscating and holding captive people's data. And I think ransomware is maybe the single largest growing malware that was not on our predictions list from last year in terms of how is this going to move. I think ransomware moved at a much faster pace than what most people anticipated. And it's made headlines with a lot of hospitals, with the San Francisco transportation 
the railway system being uh, encrypted. And so, you know, moving on the opposite side of the spectrum from what is considered like a traditional data breach, I've, I, I'm truly surprised as a kind of prediction and reflection on the year, just how fast ransomware has moved into um, taking a lot of systems hostage. And I think this is going to get increasingly difficult to be able to detect, especially as a lot of payloads that deliver this type of malware in and themselves are encrypted. And so traditional intrusion detection systems that are signature based or are looking to somehow do behavioral analysis on an incoming file or object are now dealing with these HTTPS secured sessions. And so um, that's a huge problem. How do, how do corporations detect and see when a new strain or type of ransomware is coming into their network, especially because a lot of the ransomware that we're seeing is not drive-by, right? So yes, there is a lot of drive-by where you're just trying to hit as many people as possible and see what sticks. But a lot of what ransomware is, pos is powerful for is making a very targeted attack to a specific company or organization. And I think those types of attacks are becoming harder and harder uh, to detect when implemented properly. And I think that's something that, you know, in comparison to like a Yahoo breach where there's forensic evidence when something has gone wrong, uh, it's much harder to correct, to collect the proper forensic trails to say that, you know, there's a new strain of zero day uh, ransomware hiding in um, one of your age, uh, one of your organizations or corporate networks. And so that I think is going to, as a prediction for 2017, it's going to get worse. Um, we really have not seen comprehensive solutions, um, only increased in awareness that ransomware has spread, but we haven't really seen an increase in the types of solutions that are going to um, put ransomware to bed until the next great type of malware is invented. The um, I'm a bit defender guy and they have ransomware detection uh, and protection built into the newest 2017 anti-software or anti-virus. But it seems to be the methodology is merely monitor the folders that are most important to you. If a folder changes, something happens to it, ask you. Now that, that's, that smells um, very, very similar to what Windows used to do every time you install a program, right? And it gets a little frustrating to have, I have to approve every single time a file changes, yeah. so to speak. That's a little extreme, but that's kind of the gist of it. I mean, we got to be better than that, right? It's a last ditch effort. So uh, a lot of the antivirus companies realize that signature-based detection of ransomware is only a very small percentage of what you need to be detecting. And so they're trying to take this behavioral approach of seeing how your file system is changing. And I really... Uh, for the average consumer, that might help in some additional cases, but certainly isn't going to cover all cases and certainly really isn't an effective strategy for dealing with corporate network. Um, you have to be able to detect this stuff as it's coming in and trying to gain access to your local network. If you're waiting to detect it when it hits the local machine, you're putting yourself at much higher risk that that antivirus program has no idea how to handle the case um, or that someone designs ransomware that's clever enough to basically make slow amounts of changes over slow periods of time and 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 wait out maybe up to a month before it fully does the action that it intends to do and so i think a lot of these 
behavioral analytics that you see right now are very subject to time bias and behavioral bias that may not necessarily be reflective of the type of ransomware that's taking um, large-scale organizations um, hostage. And so I think there's going to have to be more network-based solutions that are a part of the approach. Uh, but the issue with that is, like I said, a lot more of the payloads associated with getting infected by ransomware are in and of themselves encrypted or obfuscated. And so I think there are a lot of organizations that are just not prepared to detect or understand what those payloads are in real time. And unfortunately, if you're not detecting them in real time, uh, you're putting yourself at risk for having real infections show up and having to take a reactive approach instead of a proactive approach. And I think that's why I predict ransomware is going to expand is that you're really looking at a class of malware that um, only has reactive responses for it right now. There's not really many proactive responses out there. And I think that's going to play a big role in how organizations are able to respond to the issue over time. Christian, I've moved all my data, really important data, off to a NAS of some kind. I use a Drobo here. People use Synology, QNAP, some of those kinds of things. Physically separated from my PC. I, when I back it up using CrashPlan at this point, I'm versioning those uh, those backups. So I'm getting you know kind of daily, weekly, monthly, annual, so that if I have to go back and get an unransomed file, I can. Am I doing enough there? I mean, and and I've got, um, well, no, I don't. I haven't turned that antivirus because that thing is so annoying. Every time I change those files, it pops up. I've turned that off. Am I doing enough? I mean, when we think from, an in, from a user standpoint, am I doing enough to protect myself or are there other things I could be doing when we think of ransomware? Yeah, I mean, I, I think sadly, there's not a lot that average home networks can be doing for additional protection at the network level. I think stuff like Snort or other you know, more home-style intrusion detection systems, you'll have a lot more difficult of a time setting it up and getting mild results than you would actually uh, using it in a meaningful way. And so I think that being said, it's, you know, Bitdefender is actually, I would say, sadly, even though it's a crutch, so to speak, and that it's kind of suspicious how it does the detection, that's the type of stuff that I think average laptop installations of Windows are going to be using for quite some time um, going into next year. And I think part of it, too, is you really want to be cognizant of kind of the basic common sense in minimizing your behavioral patterns on the Internet so that you're not ending up in sites or, or locations that are going to put you at a risk for getting malware. So, I mean probably the single quickest thing you as a user can do to minimize the chance you ever have to deal with this is to have a good spam filter on your inbox and don't be in a rush to click links that you see. And, you know, it sounds really easy that, oh, you know, I, I'm not going to be that guy that rushes and clicks a link, but, you know, you start rushing during your day and you're doing something and then you go and rapid fire check your inbox because something else is burning uh, for the day. Um, there's a real risk. And so, just kind of slowing down a little bit and making sure you're clicking things that you intend to click honestly can reduce a lot of the chance that you as a home user or home consumer uh, deal with that issue. 
Um, for the enterprise, I think they're actively looking at how to get better at doing that, doing this type of detection analysis at the network level. And I really think that has to happen. And, and so it's not going to be immediate. And I think this is why you're going to see more people um, dealing with this issue in 2017 instead of less. Um, well, it's working. I mean, the as far as the ransomware concept is working, they're continuing to make more. It's, I mean, if it wasn't working, they'd stop doing it. So I think we've got some, you know, we've got some, it's interesting, you know, any malware bytes, is that right? Any malware bytes that, that a lot of us use? Malware bytes. Yeah. Malware bytes, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, um They have recently come out with a new version that is, that has antivirus in it. And so they're there. They started on the malware side, and have and you know kind of came up as a malware solution, and purposely stayed away from the antivirus side. But have released now. They're like all in one. So their version two, I think, is a uh, is a is a combination of it. And as I look inside Bitdefender, they have an all anti malware um, scan service that's turned on by default. And so a lot of those are now playing in both those spaces. And I run both here. I mean, I, I, I've got a lifetime copy of, of malware bytes that I just I put on everything, um, and have paid for that. And I'm a big believer in that, and it keeps things pretty clean for me. I think. Yeah, malware bytes is definitely one of the better um, antiviruses that I've seen, both from a performance perspective and from an actual detection um, standpoint. And I've noticed that. Um, it's if you if you spend the money to get the premium version, I think it's money well spent. Uh, it does a pretty good job in comparison to a lot of the other stuff I've been uh, I've been been tracking, and it's much more affordable, I think, too, than some of the other offerings that you see. I really stay far far away from the Symantec esque type uh, solutions that really just still smell bloated to me, and so I try and avoid them at, at all costs, really. Uh, but Malwarebytes has a has a soft spot in my heart as one of the better companies doing it right when it comes to antivirus solutions. And and what about some of these solutions offer to to kind of take over your browser and check those links yeah. before you go to them and approve them or or uh, what do you think of that? I think McAfee actually has a free module for that that you can add in without having to actually own their um, their antivirus piece. And I think that's okay. I don't really trust those filters to be vetting sites in the way that they say they are. I think it can help you avoid clicking really obvious links that you probably shouldn't be clicking on a search engine. So from that perspective, that's good. Um, but I don't think it's, it's definitely not something you should rely on in and of itself as a, as a solution for browsing. But um, I tend to rely much more on browser security that minimizes the ability for me to get malicious advertising or uh, malicious tracking. And so, again, big supporter of the MVPS host file blocking. Um, I'm also a really big fan of a plugin called Ghostery for Google Chrome. And Ghostery is a great way to look at all the page elements on a given site that you're visiting and strip out the advertising, tracking, cookies, and scripts that might be impacting um, your security footprint. And it's really nice. It's like if a, if a site, if there's a feature on a site, like say maybe there's a video player, believe it or not, video players do track your movements on the internet. Um, 
say there's a video you really want to watch and it's being blocked by this plugin, it's like a one one click and a refresh to go back to being able to watch and see it. So it has a really flexible configuration. You can configure it to show you what it's blocking for any given um, page that you're visiting. So Ghostry has been a really nice um, extension that I use for Google Chrome to kind of combat some of the issues relating to visiting sites that just have a lot of clutter and a lot of stuff that I know is tracking and slowing down my browsing experience. Yeah. Well, we used to spend a lot of time talking about antivirus and such, and it's kind of fallen off into the, you know, I think it's everybody's kind of figured out what they, at least in our community, what they're going to use and they've left it. I think safe computing is the best antivirus that's out there. Just being smart about what you do. But every once in a while, you know, you can't control everybody's site and they may be compromised and you might pick something else. So what else? What else yeah. are you thinking? Uh, it's a, it's a, quick closing comment. It's a dead technology. So people aren't really interested anymore because they know that it maybe catches somewhere between 10 and 30% of what's actually out there. Um, so you can hope for the best, but it's still a requirement, right? I mean, you yeah, still I mean, have something, right? But that's the thing, right? Everyone just kind of knows that's part of their baseline at this point, and they don't really question it. But I think more and more people also know that even with it being part of their baseline, there's no reasonable expectation that that's going to cover all the cases that they might encounter. Um, and so I think realistically, uh, it's kind of like, yeah, I got to have antivirus, move on. And it's just like, <laughs> it's the same mantra as, yeah, I got to have backup, move on. And it's like, will most of the products out there do the same thing? Yeah. Do people have their preferences? Yes, but at the end of the day, everyone at least agrees that they should have these products. So that's progress from where we were five to 10 years ago. Um, but that also just goes to make the point that if everyone thinks that these things should be part of their baseline, it also means attackers are designing malware knowing that this is part of your baseline, which is why I described this entire space as being an adversarial game where, like if you look at artificial intelligence, um, Malware and, well, no, before we talk about that, artificial intelligence just in general describes this adversarial challenge in which two opponents are trying to achieve a goal that is in conflict with the other person's goal. So like a really good example of adversarial um, learning is chess, right? So IBM builds this deep blue supercomputer to deal with... Um, beating the best chess champions in the world. And this is like an adversarial game where an artificial intelligence is trying to win a game and a human is trying to win a game and they each have the opposite objective. The objective of this opponent is to win and make the other person lose and vice versa. Um, and so in this way, we can really describe the cybersecurity landscape in a very similar context where we have an adversary that's constantly trying to evolve and change his technique to achieve a goal of compromising a system or doing whatever. And then we have the user of that system, which is constantly trying to defend and ensure that its interests are protected. And they're constantly in contention with each other. But the reality is what the user is doing on that machine is somewhat static. It changes over time slowly, whereas the malware is changing very quickly, it's very dynamic, and it's moving rapid to try and outpace that other person. And so I think 
people in the industry really need to start looking at cybersecurity as being much more of an adversarial learning problem than it is this kind of cat and mouse attack and defense, which is really where we're at right now. And when you start recharacterizing these problems in an adversarial learning environment, you start to see the trends of where the security community is moving, which is machine learning and other predictive techniques that go beyond what we see with antivirus products. The issue with this is that, you know, at the end of the day, people say, oh, machine learning, that sounds smart and sexy, let's do it. But machine learning is really just an implementation of statistics in a way that's gonna allow you to identify patterns in new learning um, over a subject matter that I like to say doesn't change rapidly over time, right? So let me be clear, machine learning has a lot of good purposes and can give you a lot of predictive insight of telling you things that aren't obvious by looking at your data at first. Um, but it does struggle to keep up with problem spaces that change rapidly over time because it's hard for the machine to learn what is supposed to be considered the norm and what is the deviation from the norm. And so this is a subset problem in machine learning called adversarial machine learning in which they're trying to figure out how do we correct the statistical and other inference-based methods for dealing with a problem space that changes very rapidly over time. Uh, and so the reason why the antivirus conversation is so long gone is because the industry has to move towards seeing the problem as being adversarial and antivirus in and by itself is a reactive technology. And so it'll be kind of interesting to see some of the biggest headlines you're going to see in 2017. And we're starting to see it more and more at the end of 2016 is how artificial intelligence is intersecting with cybersecurity. And if you go to Google News and just type cybersecurity in Google News, you'll start to read more and more articles where artificial intelligence and cybersecurity are mentioned in the same news article. And that's pretty significant. So when we talk about where the technology is trending, it's trending towards machines learning what is being um, put onto its operating environment without much of a notion for a human having looked at it before. And we need to get ourselves to a point where machines can learn, classify, and identify new malware without a human ever having to write a signature definition for it. And that is kind of the next point, which moves defensive techniques to moving at the same speed and dynamic rate that the attackers are. And if we can't move up the speed at which defenses happen, it'll be impossible for us to move past the cat and mouse game that um, cybersecurity has really taken over the last, you know, really up until this point as we know it. And so there are several solutions and some of the big, you know, FireEye and other companies, they're probably towards the top of the list for folks that are moving towards these predictive techniques, but it is really not that simple, right? I mean, you look at how does machine learning work in and of itself, you you take a bunch of feature values, you, you, you pump them into a machine learning algorithm and you try and get some output labels, cluster things. You know, this is kind of the traditional notion of machine learning, but intrusion detection systems that have been really successful in the last couple of years, they are smart because they don't try and look at learning what the adversary is doing. They focus on trying to learn what the user is doing because the user is moving at a much slower pace of changing their behaviors than the malware is. 
And so if the machine has a really good understanding of what it means to be a user, it's much easier for the machine to arrive at the conclusion that if this, if it observes a behavior that doesn't fall within what a user is typically doing, it's much more likely to be anomalous and therefore malicious and uh, warrant and require some further action. And so a lot of the prevention systems that you see uh, over the last three years, this has been kind of the middle step approach, which is to say, let's understand our safe space, so to speak, really well and get a really good perimeter of how users behave and interact on our network over time and build a model for that. And then anything that takes place on our network that doesn't fit in that model has to be anomalous and require further action. Now, I postulate that this is not the only um, this is not the only way in which um, folks will need to identify with this issue over time. You're going to start to see people who have to deal with learning the adversarial space as fast as they're learning um, the kind of bread and butter um, safe user behavior and traffic. And so this is a big area of research. It's a big area of research for me right now um, in school. And it's going to actually be an area of research that I present and talk about at the RSA Security Conference in February um, out in San Francisco. So um, I will be out at RSA um, and, and part of that security conference. And these will be the types of conversations that I hope to see people um, having uh, in 2017, given I really, really strongly believe this is where the security community has to give serious attention to if we want to start being able to address the types of malware and um, issues that really come up when looking at uh, pervasive stuff like ransomware. I'm a big open DNS guy. I've been that way for a long time, using their services to help, at least from an average guy standpoint, surfing the web, getting some control over it. They Cisco recently has taken them over and folded them into their umbrella product um, that's out there. I don't know how much has changed, but you know, everybody's running antivirus. Should everybody, you know, some of our guys, they run PFSense or Sonos or some of those and get some control over that. But can can the average guy still run an open DNS and hope to at least filter some of that crap out and, and, and surf a little bit more protected than they would just going into the open internet? Yeah, so if we're going to characterize it in the previous conversation, I think OpenDNS really falls in that category of understanding what are the sites that users visit most frequently, and those have a higher probability of being safe. And then the sites that are not visited frequently or are basically known malware based on previous techniques we've discussed, those are things that uh, users are prevented on clicking. Yeah, I think that's a really easy thing for people to hit out of the park. Um, it is a couple minutes to go and change your DNS servers to point at OpenDNS instead of your default internet service provider. So, you know, that's a common sense, I think, reaction. And one that's probably beyond how most people set up by default because they might not have control over that. But certainly if you have some control over your network in a home environment or an environment that you control, that's a great way to uh, kind of get some of the functionality that you would get of having like a McAfee SafeLink scanner plugin in your browser. Yeah, and you get some malware and botnet protection and phishing stuff. And, you know, there's lots of things you can set there. It'll be interesting to see. I haven't dug into it recently since they were taken over by Cisco. But um, 
uh, some interesting things, at least for the average user to think about. Christian, back at the end of October, we saw a huge DNS or DDoS attack. That's not necessarily all that unusual, except in this case, they hijacked between 50,000 and 100,000 Internet of Things devices. Yeah. Which, when you think about the, the components of a DDoS attack, what a perfect platform to do it off of. Lots of them, not a lot of computing power, but you don't need it, right? You're not throwing, um, you're not having to throw power at it. You're just having to throw requests, right? Sure. That's, it's a simplified version of it, but talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, this was by far one of the coolest um, DDoS floods that I've seen. Um, I I'm just going to go ahead and say in history because you're right. It's the first time that Internet of Things has been used to um really stymie one of the best um i mean these guys are not uh new to the game of how to protect distributed systems i mean they are along with um dyne dns and aws the two companies that were impacted by this particular attack um they're no dummies when it comes to figuring out how to protect against this kind of stuff so uh the fact that a someone was able to take advantage of vulnerable firmware in an Internet of Things device to this extent where it's truly a randomized uh, usage of devices across the world that can all point and shoot packets at the same time. That in and of itself is pretty remarkable. So the way the acquisition was done is, I think they were DVRs or something similar. I don't remember what, what device it was. I, I want to say well, it was were cameras. Yep. I think they were Internet cameras and DVRs. Right. So, the I mean, M-I-R-A-I botnet. Yeah, that sounds right. But I mean, you know, that's my point. So the fact that something like a MER botnet, um, but it's comprised of these very home devices, cameras right. and DVRs, and you know, you're going to have a random distribution of who has bought these devices. So that's going to give you the distributed part of denial of service. Right. Um, and the fact that they were just able to amplify packets, um, I mean, they measured the total volume of packets and bandwidth that went through for this attack. And I think it was almost double what any previous, um, you know, malware had reported. So, um, or I'm sorry, what any previous company had reported seeing uh, when diffusing one of these attacks. So, um, pretty remarkable and kind of shows you for every good way there is to use a the technology, there's a terrible way to use the technology. So, you know, you can go and use a DNS provider to reduce the chances that you end up at a malicious site. And then a DNS provider can be taken down by a distributed botnet made up of IP cameras and television boxes. So that's wicked awesome. <laughs> uh, but kind of illustrates my point exactly of we live in a world that is cat and mouse and for every good way there is to use a service there's a bad way to use the service what's what's the solution when we think about ip cameras and dvrs like is that just bad engineering on the on the developer side that that put that equipment out there yeah i mean obviously part of it is don't um don't write bad firmware and i mean that's something that uh, really falls on the manufacturer to get right and is unfortunate because that's a burden that the user has to carry. But from a user perspective, don't put these things on public IP addresses. And I can't tell you how many DVRs and IP cameras are sitting on public IP addresses doing nothing but using that IP when they 
there's alternative ways to configure these devices, right? So a lot of people put these types of devices right on a public IP address, especially in like small business environments, and they don't put them behind any kind of firewall. And then you end up with this type of situation. So uh, that's the other like basic thing. And, and you, you think I, I'm crazy in that the average person doesn't do this, um, but I'm trying to remember the site. Um, here's my blank moment of the day, um, sponsored by me. But there is <laughs> a, a site that I've talked about on the show before that basically keeps track of all the public IP addresses that have services running on them that are basically you can click and go in there without doing any hacking or knowing any logins. And you can just cycle through all these people who put cameras in their house, in a living room or baby monitors on a public IP with no password protection and they have no idea. And it's the creepiest thing in the world uh, to basically, you know, how would you feel if your, if your baby camera in your house was broadcasted across the world? And this is not a minority case. This is happening all the time. And so um, that's one of the biggest ways people can avoid being part of a botnet is to stop putting these types of Internet of Things devices right on public interfaces. Now, I understand when it comes to IPv6, this is exactly what we're advocating for. Um, but let's be clear, the model in IPv6 is very different from doing that type of thing in IPv4. And you are at a way higher risk for doing that in IPv4 than you are in IPv6. For now. Yeah, for now. For now. Yeah, they'll have to they'll have to do something, I would think. Don't you think? With with six eventually? I mean, that's still exposing those all out to the public. And uh, is it is it security by obscurity at that point? Or we, we've had this conversation before, but Yeah, in, in some context, um, so like you can almost anyone can scan the entire IPv4 space in twenty four hours, whereas right. with the IPv six space it would take you like I think it's some obscene number of years, um, basically way longer than the human lifetime, right? So um, until something like quantum computing comes and shatters security as we know it in all means possible, um, it is a pretty uh, interesting security through obscurity because it's probably one of the only security through obscurity use cases that might actually hold some, some merit. Um, that in and of itself is not what makes... Um, IPv6 have uh, more security than IPv4, but it certainly is a big role in it. Um, and, you know, again, remember the concept of NAT doesn't exist in the IPv6 world, which is why it's such a concern, because you do have all these devices directly on the net. And there are ways to make some educated guesses about where someone might be living in the world of IPv6, which reduces the obscurity through the security through obscurity that you might otherwise um, be rewarded with having. So. Okay. Kevin Schoonover asks, um, your thoughts around cloud access security brokers? Yeah, this is a interesting term that I think is a newer lingo. It's certainly not the tried and true dead um, IDS, IDPS lingo that we're seeing uh, over the last five, 10 years. Uh, this is really a way to have smart enterprise security policies being put throughout a network and really encompasses having smart defense, not necessarily detecting smart smart offense. So this is really a technology that looks at making sure you have consistent profiling across devices, network switches, and network topology. And it really makes sure that you're putting in 
you know, things like encryption and credential mapping and kind of having a uniform way to manage all that, which certainly increases your security posture, right? But um, I, I guess part of what they classify the uh, the cloud access security brokers is having is kind of traditional notions of intrusion detection prevention as well as like a subset of what this technology encompasses. Um, but it's certainly not what I'm talking about when I talk about people need to push new solutions and new ways of dealing with the adversarial learning challenge. Um, something like uh, security brokers are really just looking at how do enterprise networks better deal with the policies and solutions that allow their devices not to be susceptible to these things in the first place? Christian, we're right at the hour. Uh, anything when we think of looking back on 20, uh, 2016, anything else you want to cover? Uh, 2016 has been a very interesting year. I think you've seen that cybersecurity has played a huge role and has become super visible, both from a commercial standpoint um, there's been a lot of headlines about how it's impacted our, our government over the over the course of the year, starting right at the beginning of the year with IRS-related breaches. Um, and, and so I think as my outlook for 2017, there are some things I can continue to push on from last year. I'll definitely continue to say that um, the average American is going to at least understand how security impacts their lives more. They might not necessarily understand what it is. Um, so they'll get like the basics of, oh, this impacts me, but they don't really necessarily grasp the depth or the scope of what the issues are that are enabling this to happen. Um, I think as we move into 2017, um, new types of ransomware uh, will continue to emerge. It'll continue to grow and other types of just malware in general. Um, I think we're going to see a diversification, and that's something that we've been noticing um, as a trend in 2016, that diversification of malware that has inherently distinctly different behaviors or implements itself in different ways will succeed at getting past your baseline security that you've implemented in an organization or on your own machine. Um, I think data breaches will continue to be commonplace. I think they will probably... I don't know as if they'll be at an increased rate. I thought this year's rate was definitely a little bit more picked up from 2015, uh, but certainly pretty comparable. Um, and so that will be noteworthy to watch. And I think it'll be interesting to see, um, rather than tracking the state of security from like a popular news or popular media, start tracking security from new types of products and solutions that are coming out and how people are redefining terminology. I think that's going to be super important and really continuing to dispel some of the cybersecurity myths that are pretty commonplace, I would say, and, uh, you know, changing people who consider themselves IT something or computer science something or cybersecurity something, making sure people who say they have those credentials really have those credentials, I think is pretty important because, um, if we have people who are supposed to be the people, you know, charged with fixing these issues, um, not getting their facts straight, uh, it'll only set us back further. Okay. Christian Johnson is changing a few things in 2017. Anything as we, not only you have a new semester, anything you want to update listeners on that's, uh, that you can talk about here for the future? Sure. So um, I'm going to be moving into kind of a new exciting career track with uh, Amazon Web Services. I'm pretty sure most of you guys know that Amazon is one of the biggest commercial providers of 
um, cloud hosting and some of the other common services. Um, they're one of the big tech companies of our day, right? Google, Microsoft, Apple, uh, Amazon. And so Amazon's doing a lot of really exciting things right now, uh, especially they're making headlines with their grocery store that has no checkouts. Um, you just walk in and you walk out. It uses facial recognition and RFID tags to do your entire experience. Um, so Amazon is really touching and impacting people's lives in a variety of different ways what they buy commercially what they have a drone ship in front of their doorstep what they get with amazon prime and 48-hour delivery um, what people can spin up and run on the amazon web services environment um, when you go and watch a netflix movie guess who's running that amazon web services uh, so this is a very exciting opportunity and i'm looking forward to doing some engineering for uh, amazon web services and uh, being part of that environment That'd be great. Yeah, I stop. Uh, at some point, I stop being your boss, which is good, I think. It'll be fun to follow you through Amazon, and there'll be some fun stuff. We still get to podcast, and so uh, we still got a whole semester left. So we got some, and we'll try not to do the debacle of 2016, where we, we just disappeared for six months, didn't get anything done. It was a busy spring. We'll try to, Christian will have a little more time on his hands come come this spring, I hope. And uh, we, we'll be we'll anxiously await some uh, some news. Maybe the next go around, we have a little bit to share. I know you got to be careful in all circumstances about what you share, but maybe a, a little bit about the new job as we go forward. So, anything else before we wrap it? No, I think that's a wrap. All right. Well, we'll remind everyone to uh, if you're if you're thinking about web hosting, Christian's doing a bang up job as well. But if you're interested in getting some awesome web hosting, especially for podcasters, let's say, and it's really podcast optimized. Um, if you're if you're doing that, secure, reliable, have very high speed, and uh, it's available out of Maple Grove Partners. Go maplegrovepartners.com. Christian's got some kind of plan that you can get into. the the uh, The easy ones to get into are ten bucks a month. Would love to have you on there. And there's some spots for you. He doesn't take everybody. There's some spots for you if you uh, if you're interested in doing it. We'll be back with some more Cyber Frontiers as we get into 2017. Good to get to the end of another year christian we we celebrated the sixth year of home gadget geeks uh just um, earlier in the month it's hard to believe the years just keep going on and on and on and i think this makes two maybe for cyber frontiers i'd have to go back and have to take a peek and see when we started this thing would it be maybe three even right maybe we've been a, we've been a little slow on this one getting this done let's see if we can go all the way to the end. Let's see what number one says. Number one was February 18th, 2014. Yeah, so coming up on that uh, third year of it here. We thank you for listening. If you uh, if you enjoyed it, share it. And with that, uh, we'll say goodnight, everybody. <laughs>